Today I have for you a landmark essay by Dom Prosper Geringer, one of the greatest minds of the church before the council. His ideas, his, or they weren't really his ideas, were they? They were, his understanding of Catholic theology was the sort of standard setter for mainstream Catholic thought up through until just before the council. So he doesn't really need much of an introduction, and I've covered him before. I've given uh, last year, in 2020, I believe, I provided his thoughts on Lent. So if you want to go back and listen to those, you can. Anyway, Dom Prosper Geringer, The Day of Pentecost. The great day which consummates the work that God had undertaken for the human race has at last shone upon the world. The days of Pentecost, as St. Luke says, are accomplished. We have had seven weeks since the Pasch, and now comes the day that opens the mysterious number of fifty. This day is the Sunday, already made holy by the creation of the light and by the resurrection of Jesus. It is about to receive its final consecration and bring us to the fullness of God. In the old and figurative law, God foreshadowed the glory that was to belong at a future period to the fiftieth day. The Holy Land had passed the waters of the Red Sea, thanks to the protecting power of this Paschal Lamb. Seven weeks were spent in the desert, which was to lead to the Promised Land, and the very morrow of those seven weeks was where the day whereon was made the alliance between God and his people. The Pentecost, the fiftieth day, was honored by the promulgation of the Ten Commandments of the Divine Law, and every following year, our elder brothers celebrated the great event by a solemn festival. But their Pentecost was figurative, like their Pasch. There was to be a second Pentecost for all people, as there was to be a second Pasch for the redemption of the whole world. The Pasch, with all its triumphant joys, belongs to the Son of God, the conqueror of death. Pentecost belongs to the Holy Ghost, for it is the day whereon he began his mission into this world, which henceforward was to be under his law. How different are the two Pentecosts? The one on the rugged rocks of that land, amidst thunder and lightning, promulgates a law that is written on tablets of stone. The second is, is in the holy city, on which God's anger has not as yet been manifested, because it still contains within its walls the first fruits of that new people, over whom the spirit of love is to reign. In this second Pentecost, the heavens are not overcast, nor is the roar of thunder heard, the hearts of men are not stricken with fear, as when God spake on Sinai, repentance and gratitude are the sentiments now uppermost. A divine fire burns within their souls, and will spread throughout the whole world. Our Lord Jesus had said, I am come to cast fire on the earth, and what will I but that it be kindled? The hour for the fulfillment of this word has come. The spirit of love, the Holy Ghost, the eternal uncreated flame, is about to descend from heaven and realize the merciful design of our Redeemer. Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims who have flocked thither from every country of this world. They feel a strange, mysterious expectation working in their souls. They are our elder brothers and have come from every land where the Holy Land has founded a temple. They have come to keep the feasts of Pasch and Pentecost. Asia, Africa, and even Rome here have their representatives. Amidst these elder brothers, pro properly so called, are to be seen many who are not among them, who, from a desire to serve God more faithfully, have embraced the holy law and observances. They are called proselytes. 
This influx of strangers who have come to the holy city out of a desire to observe the law gives the city a Babel-like appearance, for each nation has its own language. They are not, however, under the influence of pride and prejudice, as are the inhabitants of that land. Neither have they, like these latter, known and rejected the Messiah, nor blasphemed his works, whereby he gave testimony of his divine character. It may be that they took part with the other elder brothers in clamoring for Jesus' death, but they were led to it by the chief priests and magistrates of the holy city, which they reverenced as the holy city of God, and to which nothing but religious motives have brought them. It is the hour of terse, the third hour of the day, fixed from all eternity for the accomplishment of a divine decree. It was at the hour of midnight that the Father sent into this world that he might take flesh in Mary's womb, the Son eternally begotten of himself. So now at this hour of terse, the Father and the Son send upon the earth the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them both. He is sent to form the church, the bride in the kingdom of Christ. He is to assist and maintain her. He is to save and sanctify the souls of men. And this, his mission, is to continue to the end of time. Suddenly is heard, coming from heaven, the sound of a violent wind. It startles the people in the city. It fills the cenacle with its mighty breath. A crowd is soon round the house that stands on Mount Sion. The hundred and twenty disciples that are within the building feel that mysterious emotion with them, of which their master once said, The Spirit breatheth where he will, and thou hearest his voice. Like the strange invisible creature which probes the very depth of the sea and makes the waves heave mountains high, this breath from heaven will traverse the world from end to end, breaking down every barrier that would stay its course. The holy assembly have been days in fervent expectation. The divine spirit gives them this warning of his coming, and they in their passiveness of ecstatic longing await his will. As to those who are outside the cenacle and who have responded to the appeal thus given, let us for the moment forget them. A silent shower falls in the house. It is a shower of fire, which, as Holy Church says, burns not but enlightens, consumes not but shines. Flakes of fire in the shape of tongues rest on the heads of the hundred and twenty disciples. It is the Holy Ghost taking possession of all and each. The Church is not now not only in Mary, but also in these hundred and twenty disciples. All belong now to the Spirit that has descended upon them. His kingdom has begun. It is manifested. Its conquests will be speedy and glorious. But let us consider the symbol chosen to designate this divine change. He who showed himself under the endearing form of a dove on the occasion of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan now appears under that of fire. He is the spirit of love, and love is not only gentle and tender. It is also ardent as fire. Now, therefore, the world is under the influence of the Holy Ghost. It must needs be on fire, and the fire shall not be checked. And why is this form of tongues? To show that the heavenly fire is to be spread by word, by speech. These hundred and twenty disciples need but to speak of the Son of God, made man, and our Redeemer, of the Holy Ghost who renews our souls, of the Heavenly Father who loves and adopts us as his children. Their word will, be, will find thousands to believe and welcome it. Those that receive it shall all be united in one faith, and they shall be called the Catholic Church, that is, universal, existing in all places and times. Jesus said, Go, teach all nations. The Holy Ghost brings from heaven both the tongue that is to teach and the fire, the love of God and of mankind, which is to give warmth and efficacy to the teaching. The tongue and the fire are now given to these first disciples, who by the assistance of the Holy Spirit will transmit them to others. So it will be the end of time. An obstacle, however, opposes the mission at the very outset. 
since the confusion of Babel, there have been as many languages as countries. Communication by word has been interrupted. How then is the word to become the instrument of the world's conquest, and to make one family out of all these nations that cannot understand each other? Fear not, the Holy Spirit is all-powerful, and has provided for this difficulty. With the other gifts wherewith he has enriched the hundred and twenty disciples, he has given them that of understanding all languages, and of making themselves understood in every language. In a transport of holy enthusiasm, they attempt to speak the languages of all nations. Their tongue and their ear take in, not only without effort, but even with charm and joy, this plenitude of word and speech which is to reunite mankind together. The spirit of love has annulled the separation of Babel. Men are once more made brethren by the unity of language. How beautiful thou art, dear church of our God! Heretofore the workings of the Holy Ghost have been limited, but now he breatheth freely where he willeth. He brings thee forth to the eyes of men by this stupendous prodigy. Thou art in the image of what this earth was, when all its inhabitants spoke the same language. The prodigy is not to cease with the day of Pentecost, nor with the disciples who are its first receivers. When the apostles have terminated their lives in preaching, the gift of tongues, at least in its miraculous form, will cease, because no longer needed. But thou, O Church of Christ, wilt continue to speak all tongues, even to the end of time, for thou art to dwell in every clime. The one same faith is to be expressed in the language of every country, and thus transformed, the miracle of Pentecost is to be kept up forever within thee as one of thy characteristic marks. The great St. Augustine alluded to this when he spoke the following admirable words, The whole body of Christ, the, now, the church, now speaks in all tongues. Nay, I myself speak all tongues, for I am in the body of Christ. I am in the church of Christ. If the body of Christ now speaks all languages, then am I in all languages. Greek is mine, Syriac is mine, Hebrew is mine, and all are mine, for I am one with all the several nations that speak them. During the ages of faith, the church, which is the only source of all true progress, succeeded in giving one common language to all the nations that were in union with her. For centuries, the Latin language was the bond of union between all countries. However distant this, these might be from one another, there was this link of connection between them. It was the medium of communication for, for interstate negotiations, for the spread of science, or for friendly epistolary correspondence. No one was a stranger in any part of the West or even beyond it who could speak this language. The great heresy of the 16th century robbed us of this as of so many blessings. It tore asunder that Europe which the church had united, not only by her faith, but by her language. But let us return to the cynical, and continue our contemplation of the wondrous workings of the Holy Spirit within this still-closed sanctuary. First of all, we look for Mary, for her who now, more than ever, is full of grace. After those measureless gifts lavished upon her in her immaculate conception, after the treasures of holiness infused into her by the incarnate word during the nine months she bore him in her womb, after the special graces granted her for acting and suffering in union with her son, in the work of the world's redemption, after the favors wherewith the same Jesus loaded her with when in the glory of his resurrection, we should have thought that heaven had given all it could to a mere creature, however sublime the destiny of that creature might be. But no. Here is a new mission open for Mary. The church is born. She is born of Mary. Mary has given birth to the bride of her son. New duties fall upon the mother of the church. Jesus has ascended into heaven, leaving Mary upon the earth, that she may nurse the infant church. Oh, how lovely and yet how dignified is this infancy of our dear church, cherished as she is, fed and strengthened by Mary. But this second Eve, this true mother of the living, must receive a fresh infusion of grace to fit her for this, for this her new office. Therefore it is 
she that has the first claim to, and the richest portion of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Heretofore her, he overshadowed her, and made her mother of the Son of God. Now he makes her the mother of the Christian people. It is the verification of those words of the royal prophet, the stream, literally, the impetuosity of the river, maketh the city of God joyful. The Most High hath sanctified his own tabernacle. The spirit of love here fulfills the intention expressed by our Redeemer when dying on the cross. Woman, said Jesus to her, behold thy son. St. John was the son, and he represented all mankind. The Holy Ghost now infuses into Mary the plenitude of the grace needed for her maternal mission. From this day forward she acts as mother of the infant church, and when at length the church no longer needs her visible presence, this mother quits the earth for heaven, where she is crowned queen. But there too she exercises his, her glorious title and office of mother of men. Let us contemplate this masterpiece of Pentecost and admire the new loveliness that beams in Mary from this new maternity. She is inflamed by the fire of divine love, and this in a way not felt before. She is all devoted to the office put upon her and for which she has been left on earth. The grace of the apostolate is granted to her. She has received the tongues of fire, and although her voice is not to make itself heard in public preaching, yet will still speak to the apostles, directing and consoling them in their labors. She will speak, too, to the faithful, but with a force, a sweetness, and a persuasiveness, becoming one whom God has made the most exalted of his creatures. The primitive Christians, with such a training as this, will have vigor and energy enough to resist all the attacks of hell, and like Stephen, who had often listened to her inspiring words, to give everything for the faith. Let us next look at the Apostolic College, the frequent instructions they have been receiving from the Lord during the forty days after his resurrection have changed them into quite other men. But now that they have received the Holy Ghost, the change in conversion is complete. They are filled with the enthusiasm of faith. Their souls are on fire with divine love. The conquest of the whole world, this is their ambition, and they know it is their mission. What their master had told them is fulfilled. They are endued with power from on high and are ready for the battle. Who would suppose that these are the men who crouched with fear, when their Jesus was in the hands of his enemies? Who would take these to be the men that doubted of his resurrection? All that this beloved master has taught them is now so clear to them. They see it all. They understood it all. The Holy Ghost has infused into them, and in a sublime degree, the gift of faith. They are impatient to spread this faith throughout the whole earth. Far from fearing, they even long to suffer being targeted in the discharge of the office entrusted to them by Jesus, that of preaching his name and his glory unto all nations. Look at Peter. You easily recognize him by that majestic bearing which, though sweetly tempered by deep humility, bespeaks his preeminent dignity. A few hours ago it was the tranquil gravity of the head of the Apostolic College. Now his whole face gleams with a flash of enthusiasm, for the Holy Ghost is now sovereign possessor of this vicar of Christ, this prince of the word, this master teacher of truth. Near him are seated the other apostles, Andrew, his older brother, who now conceives that ardent passion for the cross, which is to be his grand characteristic, John, whose meek and gentle eye now glistens with the fire of inspiration, betokening the prophet Patmos, James, the brother of John, and called like him the son of thunder, bears in his whole attitude the appearance of the future chivalrous conqueror of Iberia. The other James, known and loved under the name of the the brother of Jesus feels a fresh and deeper transport of joyousness as the power of the Spirit thrills through his being. Matthew is encircled with a glowing light, which points him out to us as the first writer of the New Testament. Thomas, whose faith was the fruit he took from Jesus' wounds, feels that faith now made perfect. It is generous, free, unreserved, worthy of the brave apostle of the Far East. In a word, all twelve are a living hymn to the glory of the Almighty Spirit, whose power is thus magnificently evinced 
even at the outset of his reign. The disciples, too, are sharers, though in a less degree than the apostles, of the divine gift. They receive the same spirit, the same sacred fire, for they, too, are to go forth and conquer the world and found churches. The holy women also, who form part of the assembly of the Cenacle, have received the graces of the wondrous descent of the Holy Ghost. It was love that emboldened them to stand near the cross of Jesus and be the first to revisit his sepulchre on Easter morning. This love is now redoubled. A tongue of fire is stood over each of them, and the time will come when they will speak with fervid eloquence of Jesus to both our elder brothers and to those not among them. The temple will banish Magdalene and her companions. The outsiders of our Western Europe will receive them, and the word of these holy exiles will produce a hundredfold of fruit. Meanwhile, a large crowd of our elder brothers, has collected round the mysterious cenacle. Not only has the mighty wind excited their curiosity, but moreover, that same divine spirit who is working such wonders upon the holy assembly within is impelling them to visit the house, whereto is the newborn church of Christ. They clamor for the apostles, and these are burning with zeal to begin their work. So too are all. At once, then, the crowd sees these men standing in its midst and relating the prodigy that has been wrought by the God of the Holy Land. What is the surprise of this multitude, composed as it is of people of so many different nations, when these poor uneducated Galileans address them, each in the language of his own country? They have heard them speak before this, and they expected a repetition of the jargon now, when, lo, there is the correct accent and diction of every country, and with such eloquence. The symbol of unity is here shown in all its magnificence. Here is the Christian church. It is one, though consisting of such varied elements— the walls of division, which divine justice had set up between nation and nation, are now removed. Here also are the heralds of the faith of Christ. They are ready for their grand mission. They long to traverse the earth and to save it by the word of their preaching. But in the crowd there are some who are shocked at the witnessing this heavenly enthusiasm of the apostles. These men, they say, are full of a new wine. It is a language of rationalism, explaining away mystery by reason. These Galileans, these drunken men, are, however, to conquer the whole world to Christ and to give the Holy Ghost with his inebriating unction to all mankind. The holy apostles feel that it is time to proclaim the new Pentecost. Yes, this anniversary of the old is a fitting day for the new to be declared, but in this proclamation of the law of mercy and love, which is to supersede the law of justice and fear, who is to be the Moses? Our Emmanuel, before ascending into heaven, had selected one of the twelve for the glorious office. It is Peter, the rock on whom is built the church. It is time for the shepherd to show himself and speak, for the flock is now to be formed. Let us hearken to the Holy Ghost, who is about to speak by his chief organ to this wondering and attentive multitude. The apostle, though he speaks in one tongue, is understood by each of his audience, no matter what his country and language may be. The discourse is of itself a guarantee of the truth and divine origin of the new law. The fisherman of Gensareth thus pours forth his wondrous eloquence. Ye men of, Ju of the Holy Land, all you that dwell in the Holy City, be this known to you. With your ears receive my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall have dreams. And upon my servants indeed, and upon my handmaids, will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Ye men of the Holy Land, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did him in the midst of you, as you also know, this same being delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, 
you by the hands of wicked men have crucified and slain, whom God had raised up, having loosed the sorrows of hell, as it was impossible that he should be holden to it. For David saith concerning him, My flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in the tomb, nor suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Yet, men, brethren, let me freely speak to you on the patriarch David, that he died and was buried, and his sepulchre is with us to this day. Whereas therefore he was a prophet, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, for neither was he left in the tomb, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised again, whereof all we are witnesses. Being exalted by the right hand of God, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he had poured forth which you, have, you see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of the Holy Land know most certainly, that God hath made both Lord and Christ the same Jesus, whom you have crucified. Thus did the second Moses promulgate the new law. How must his hearers have welcomed this stupendous gift of this new Pentecost, which put them in possession of the divine realities foreshadowed by that figurement of one of old? Here again it was God revealing himself to his creatures, and as usual by miracles. Peter alluded to the wonders wrought by Jesus, who thus bore to testimony to his being the Messiah. He tells his audience that the Holy Ghost has been sent from heaven, according to the promise made to this Jesus by his Father. They have proof enough of the great fact in the gift of tongues which they themselves are witnesses. The Holy Spirit makes his presence and influence to be felt in the hearts of these favored listeners. And few moments previously they were disciples of Sinai, who had come from distant lands to celebrate the bygone Pasch and Pentecost. Now they have faith, simple and full faith, in Christ. They, rep re they repent of the awful crime of his death, of which they have been accomplices. They confess his resurrection and ascension. They beseech Peter and the rest of the apostles to put them in the way of salvation. Men and brethren, say they, what shall we do? Better dispositions could not be. They desire to know their duty, and are determined to do it. Peter resumes his discourse, saying, Do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you, and to all that are far off, whomsoever the Lord God shall call. Our elder brother's Pentecost pales at each word of the new Moses. The Christian Pentecost manifests itself with clearer light. The reign of the Holy Ghost is inaugurated in the holy city, and under the very shadow of that temple which is doomed to destruction. Peter continued his instructions, but the sacred volume has left us only these few words, wherewith probably the apostle made his final appeal to his hearers. Save yourself from this wicked generation. These children of the Holy Land had to make this sacrifice, or they never could have shared in the graces of the new Pentecost. They had to cut themselves off from their own people. They had to leave the temple for the church. There was a struggle in many a heart at that moment, but the Holy Spirit triumphed. Three thousand declared themselves disciples of Christ and received the mark of adoption in holy baptism. Church of the living God, how lovely art thou in thy first reception of the divine spirit! How admirable is thy early progress! Thy first abode was in the Immaculate Mary, the Virgin full of grace, the Mother of God, a second victory gave thee the hundred and twenty disciples of the Senecal, and now three thousand elect proclaim thee as their mother, and leaving the unhappy holy city, will carry they, thy name and kingdom to their own countries. Tomorrow Peter is to preach in the temple, and five thousand men will enroll themselves as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Hail, then, de dear creation of the Holy Ghost, active on earth, triumphant in heaven, beautiful, noble, immortal church, all hail, and thou bright Pentecost, day of our truest birth, how fair, how glorious thou makest these first words of Jesus' bride on earth. The divine spirit thou givest us has written, 
not upon stone, but upon our hearts, the law that is to govern us. In thee, O Pentecost, we find we finally realize the hopes foreshadowed in the mystery of the Epiphany. For though thyself art promulgated in the holy city, yet thy graces are to be extended to all that are far off, that is, to us not from there. The Magi came from the east. We watched them as they visited the crib of the divine babe. For we know that we too are to have our season of grace. It was thou, O Holy Spirit, that didst attract them to Bethlehem. And now, in this Pentecost of thy power, thou callest all men. The star is changed into the tongues of fire, and the face of the earth is to be renewed. O grant that we may be ever faithful to the graces thou offerest, and carefully treasure the gifts sent us with thee and through thee by the Father and the Son. The mystery of Pentecost holds so important a place in the Christian dispensation that we cannot be surprised at the church's ranking it in her liturgy on an equality with her paschal solemnity. The pasch is the redemption of man by the victory of Christ. Pentecost is the Holy Ghost taking possession of man redeemed. The ascension is the intermediary mystery. It consummates the pasch by placing the man-god, the conqueror of death, in our head, the right hand of the Father. It, prepare, it prepares the mission of the Holy Ghost to our earth. This mission could not take place until Jesus had been glorified, as St. John tells us. And several reasons are assigned for this fact by the Holy Fathers. It was necessary that the Son of God, who, together with the Father, is the principle of the possession of the Holy Ghost in the divine essence, should also personally send this divine spirit upon the earth. The exterior mission of one of the three persons is but the sequel and manifestation of the mysterious and eternal production which is ever going on within the divinity. Thus the Father is not sent, either by the Son or by the Holy Ghost, because he does not proceed from them. The Son is sent to men by the Father, of whom he is eternally begotten. The Holy Ghost is sent by the Father and the Son, because he proceeds from them both. But in order that the mission of the Holy Ghost might give greater glory to the Son, there was a congruity in its not taking place until such time as the incarnate word should be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. How immense the glory of human nature, that it was hypostatically united to the person of the Son of God when this mission of the Holy Ghost was achieved, and that we can say, in strict truth, the Holy Ghost was sent by the man God. This divine mission was not to be given to the third person until men were deprived of the visible presence of Jesus. As we have already said, the hearts of the faithful were henceforward to follow their absent Redeemer by a pure and holy spiritual love. Now, who was to bring us this new love, if not he who is the link of the eternal love of the Father and the Son? This Holy Spirit of love and union is called, in the sacred scriptures, the gift of God, and it is on the day of Pentecost that the Father and the Son send us this ineffable gift. Let us call to mind the words spoken by our Emmanuel to the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. If thou didst know the gift of God, he had not yet been given, he had not yet been manifested, otherwise than in a partial way. From this day forward he inundates the whole earth with his fire, he gives spiritual life to all, he makes his influence felt in every place. We know the gift of God, so that we have but to open our hearts to receive him, as did the three thousand who listened to St. Peter's sermon. Observe, too, the season of the year in which the Holy Ghost comes to take possession of his earthly kingdom. Our Jesus, the Son of Justice, arose in Bethlehem in the very depth of winter. Humble and gradual was his ascent into the zenith of his glory. But the Spirit of the Father and the Son came in a season that harmonizes with his own divine characteristic. He is a consuming fire. He comes into the world when summer is in its pride, and sunshine decks our earth with loveliest flowers. Let us welcome the life-giving heat of the Holy Ghost, and earnestly beseech him that it may ever abide within us. The liturgical year has brought us to the full possession of truth by the incarnate word. Let us carefully cherish the love which the Holy Ghost has now enkindled within our hearts. 
The Christian Pentecost, prefigured by the ancient one of our elder brothers, is one of a number of feasts that were instituted by the apostles. As we have already remarked, it is formally shared with Easter the honor of the solemn administration of baptism. Its octave, like that of Easter, and for the same reason, ended with a Saturday following the feast. The catechumens received baptism on the night between Saturday and Sunday. So that the Pentecost solemnity began on the vigil, for the neophytes at once put on their white garments. On the eighth day, the Saturday, they laid them aside. In the Middle Ages, the Feast of Pentecost was called by the beautiful name of the Pasch of Roses, just as the Sunday within the octave of Ascension was termed the Sunday of Roses. The color and fragrance of this lovely flower were considered by our Catholic forefathers as emblems of the tongues of fire, which rested on the heads of the hundred and twenty disciples, and poured forth the sweet gifts of love and grace on the infant church. The same idea suggested the red-colored vestments for the liturgical services during the whole octave. In his Rational, a work which sounds in most interesting information regarding the medieval liturgical usages, Durandus tells us that, in the 13th century, a dove was allowed to fly out about in the church, and flowers and lighted tow were thrown down from the roof during the Mass on Whit Sunday. These were allusions to the two mysteries of Jesus' baptism and of the descent of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. At Rome, the station is in the Basilica of St. Peter. It was but just the special honor should be paid to the Prince of the Apostles, for it was on this day that his preaching won 3,000 converts to the church. Though the station and the indulgences attached to it are at St. Peter's, yet the Sovereign Pontiff and the Sacred College of Cardinals solemnized today's service in the Lateran Basilica, which is the mother church of the city and of the world. I hope you found that edifying. Have a blessed Sunday, and happy Pentecost. God bless.